0: Hi, this is Dr. Richard Gewurz. I'm a distinguished professor of psychology at California School of Professional Psychology in San Diego, and a Stens HRV trainer. And you're listening to the Neural Noodle Network podcast.
1: Thank you all for joining Neuronoodles Noodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology podcast featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Janssens and Dr. Skip Wren. They've been practicing for well over 50 years and are happy to share their knowledge with you. You can find Dr. Laura at Jansons.com, that's J-A-N-S-O-N-S.com, and Dr. Skip can be found at DrSkipRin.com, that's DrSkip, H-R-I-N.com. My name is Pete, and today we're going to go chat with Dr. Richard Gewurz, who is a professor of psychology, distinguished professor of psychology at the California School of Professional Psychology, in San Diego, and that's at Lion International University. Say that three times fast. He's also a trainer and HRV uh, trainer with the Stens Corporation. If you remember, we recently had Steve Stern, the owner over at Stens Corporation, and he suggested that we get Dr. Gewurz on. And, and here we are today. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for uh, coming on board with us today. My pleasure. Okay, really simple question, softball to kick it off, doctor. What is HRV? What does it stand for?
0: So HRV stands for heart rate variability. And it's a little bit not intuitive, but uh, because most people are used to heart rate, like that you get in the average of the gym, but those are average values that just look at your average heart rate. If you look at heart rate beat by beat by beat, turns out healthy heart rates have quite a lot of variability between beats. So you have one beat, then another, a little shorter, a little longer, and that's actually a healthy sign. So over many years, the the measurement of heart rate variability has developed because those changes in beat-to-beat heart rate are a pretty good indicator of what's going on in the autonomic nervous system, especially the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system. So there's been tens of thousands of studies measuring heart rate variability. And then about 20 years ago, uh, Dr. Paul Lehrer and myself developed a biofeedback technique where we actually feed the information back to patients about the changes in heart rate variability as a kind of a therapeutic intervention. And that has turned out to be very successful and has taken off. And so there's now, and now it's pretty widespread.
1: When did you uh, meet Steve Stern at Stens, say that three times fast, how how did you start uh, doing training for him? How did he, how did he find you, doctor?
0: Well, Steve has been uh, a a member of our national biofeedback group for many, many years, uh, probably going back 20, 25 years. Uh, So he's always exhibited, Stens has always exhibited at our meetings and uh, I've used their equipment and uh, know all of the staff there for many years. And then I don't know, about 20 years ago, or maybe a little bit less, he said, would you like to do a training? I don't have a lot of time for those external trainings, because I'm a full-time professor. But I said, yeah, I would enjoy doing an occasional two-day workshop for you, uh, because uh, those workshops are nice, because he supplies equipment for all the participants. And I don't get to do that very often, where the participants actually can work. So I think for about 15 years, maybe, I've been doing a couple, one or two workshops for him a year all over the country, including in Chicago, where I'm from. So it was always nice to go back to Chicago and see my family as a uh, part of it. You're from Chicago. Did not know that. Yeah. not far proper or the burbs? The burbs, the north burbs, although I'm a Sox fan. <laughs> which, which north burb, Doc? Uh, Skokie, Evanston.
1: Spokey Evanson. Okay, got it. All right, that that makes sense. You're you're a Sox fan. Uh, <laughs> uh, wh- when did you first learn about HRV uh, prior to Steve? I mean, because you, you were you were studying psychology. How mm. did that work out? How did you get involved to get started? Yeah,
0: that was an interesting story. So um, I was involved in the field of biofeedback very early on. I was living in Minnesota at the time, um, and at the time, this was now uh, mid 1970s. The only real modalities available in, in biofeedback uh, and or neurofeedback were electromy EMG muscle uh, feeding back muscle activity, or finger temperature, or skin conductance, like a gal- galvanic skin response, and uh was working a little bit clinically i was teaching but i was working clinically at Mayo clinic uh, on like a part-time basis i we i found those uh, modalities a bit limiting we weren't doing any neuro- there were some neurofeedback at the time but it was very cumbersome that what we weren't doing that i came across a literature i knew some literature about heart rate and there's a pioneer in the field called uh, steve porges who in 1990s published an article about the parasympathetic nervous system and how important that was in stress, Um, at just about that time, we began to develop equipment that could measure heart rate beat by beat by beat, because up till then, it was only averages. I began playing around with it as a possible biofeedback mode, really not having any idea what I was doing, but just feeding back information to people. And uh, lo and behold, it really was a pretty powerful form of biofeedback. Added, adding to the other modalities we had. So that was the beginning. Uh, at the time, uh, my colleague Paul Lehrer out at Rutgers was also doing the same. And so we both, he was working on asthma, I was working on anxiety and pain, and we started collaborating. And little by little, really due do the, the work of a Russian physiologist named Evgeny Vashilo, we began to figure out what the heck we were doing and why it was powerful intervention. Uh, Vashilo was the cosmonaut to the astronauts, to the cosmonauts. Um, He was the physiologist for the cosmonauts, sorry. And so there's a great anecdote connected to this. Um, He was monitoring heart rate, uh, and they had pretty decent monitoring, one of the cosmonauts in space. And every day for about 20 minutes, one of these cosmonauts, Yuri, would have these crazy-looking heart rate patterns. They thought it was space sickness or something terrible. Evgeny calls up and says, Yuri, what are you doing? And Yuri says, shut up, I'm meditating. So basically, Yuri had kind of discovered the same thing we teach with heart rate variability biofeedback, produces a very dramatic changes in heart rate patterns, which turns out to be the key for why it works so well. The heading that I'm going to put for
1: this show, doctor, is you know, chronic pain, fibromyalgia, gastrointestinal pain, uh, trauma. How does HRV help out with that? Or what are the trainings that you do? Is it the vagal nerve? What? I'm the layman of the group, so I don't know. I'm, I'm asking a question for the people that are tuning in, how they can do this HRV training to help out with just throwing out their uh, fibromyalgia. How, what do you have to do? How does it work? I know we only have a 40 minute show here, but uh,
0: well, let's start with actually uh, gastrointestinal disorders. That's the clear cut one, okay? So, that the one people would know is IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, is the most common in kids. That's usually called uh, functional abdominal pain, it's incredibly common in kids, Uh, kids, uh, especially in middle school when things get a bit more stressful. They often come down with a lot of stomach pain, constipation, diarrhea, bloating. Our, we have a clinic on uh, our campus, and we see tons of those kids. The background behind that is that some of these disorders that you mentioned, we think have a very strong autonomic nervous system component to them. The autonomic nervous system is composed of two branches, the sympathetic, the fight-flight-fright branch, and the parasympathetic, which is the rest-digest-restore branch. Uh, the sympathetic, most people are familiar with kind of the fight-flight response. And for many years, we thought that was really the culprit in these disorders. But it turns out, based on uh, work that Steve Porges and other, others have done, that the parasympathetic system, especially the 10th the cranial nerve, the vagus nerve, is part of that parasympathetic system, which is called the vagal or the vagal break, the vagus or the vagal break seems to play an important role in day-to-day regulation of all these functions in our body that are automatic, like digestion, like changing heart rate patterns, like respiration, many things in the body that are controlled automatically by the autonomic nervous system. And it appears that under long periods of stress or other kinds of um, perturbations, that the system can get out of balance or inflexible and especially the gut is heavily regulated by the parasympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic really only shuts it down when there's a true fight-flight response. What we've realized is that these kids are going through stressful periods during those middle school years, especially, where something called vagal withdrawal occurs. So if you think of the accelerator as a sympathetic and the, and the brake as the parasympathetic, The first thing that happens under any kind of threat, even mild threat like worry or social drama, is that the break goes off. The vagus vagal break goes off. It makes sense from an evolutionary point of view. When you're under threat, you wouldn't want to have a break on systems in your body. You don't need to be digesting your Big Mac if there's a saber-toothed tiger out there, right? The break goes off very quickly, and, and we call that vagal withdrawal. And we've done studies now where we hook kids up or adults up For 24 hour readings. And we can really see how often that break goes off in them. And in the kids that we, the one study we published with kids, that break went off a lot in the kids who had symptoms compared to normal kids, kids without symptoms. So we kind of reconstituted the idea of stress being something that turns on the fight flight system to something that turns off the rest digest system. And then it turns out that we have an intervention for that that's a brand new idea that's 2,500 years old, uh, which is uh, a breathing, a a kind of modern version of a breathing yoga technique. Uh, Because it turns out when you breathe, uh, based on the biofeedback, you breathe at a very specific kind of frequency in an effortless way. You really turn on a powerful stimulus of that vagal break, and it stimulates areas in, in the in the brain, the pathways from the heart to the brain are powerful, and it begins to regulate the gut as well. So these kids, when they practice this biofeedback technique, or adults, uh, get get really good uh, symptom relief when they practice it on a regular basis. They do have to practice regularly, but that was sort of the basis of the logic behind the uh, biofeedback.
2: I don't want to back us up too much, Dr. Govertz, but so you take your heart rate, you know, everybody's got smartphones and you can say, hey, my resting heart, whatever, sitting here at 72. You're saying that's an average over time. Again, I'm thinking for newer listeners at home. So that's an average over whatever the time period might be, 30 seconds or something.
0: Yeah, exactly. Maybe five, five, five to eight beats. It takes a, It takes a better bit of instrumentation to get beat by beat. So you need, okay. you need something that'll detect the difference between each
2: heartbeat. All right. So I, I can't do the math that fast, but say one heartbeats in, you know, at five and eight and you got these different intervals between them. How does that difference or, or the variability reflect health? How, how, how does this variability, it, because you want it, right? Instead yeah. of every, you know, three seconds, it's beeping, you know, what, what's so great about the variability, yeah,
0: it's kind of counterintuitive. Usually we think of variability as bad. And things, but in this case, the variability is reflecting the autonomic nervous system's ability to adjust to both internal and external stimuli. If, if you think about it, it's like having a really good thermostat in a house that has a lot of drafts. Right? So if, if you had a house in the Chicago suburbs with uh, poor insulation, and the usual wind was blowing through, so it gets cold and hot and cold and hot, and your thermostat has to turn on and off quickly. That would be a variable thermostat, right? If you were, if you were monitoring thermostat, it would be going going on and off. That would be good, right? Because that would yeah. be keeping the temperature as stable as it can.
3: Adaptation, like like your your body adapts to the changes, and that's a positive thing.
0: Right, right. It is constantly adapting. And those changes are coming from internally inside the body. So your gut is demanding things. Your brain is demanding things. Your lungs are demanding things to so make changes as well as externally. So when, you, when you're uh, an external threat, like a test in school or somebody snubbing you and socially, it responds to those things as well by kind of making adjustments to anything that it needs to make adjustments to. So if it's making a lot of adjustments, it's quite variable and quite, quite unregular. So counterintuitively, heart rates that look like they're all over the place are the healthy ones. Very metronome-like heart rates happen just before you die.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'll, stop. I'll stop shooting for that then for a while.
3: And that's different, different from when we do uh, neurofeedback or take these QEEG photos, images, um, where the regulation is, is not good. regulation is not, not healthy.
0: Right. Yeah. And, and other kinds of measures, like in your palm sweating, you wouldn't want a ton of variability in palm sweating, right? That would mean you're emotionally all over the place or in some other, other measures. Um, but one of the reasons it's variable is that it's also controlling blood pressure. So there's a feedback loop in the body, like a thermostat in the body, that when your blood pressure goes up, your heart rate goes down. And when your blood pressure goes up, your heart rate, uh, when blood pressure goes down, your heart rate goes up. Because variability in blood pressure is not good. Variability in, in, in heart rate is good, but in blood pressure is not good. Um, so, and there's a system called the baroreflex, they, these sensors that sense when blood pressure is up or down, and they feed back to, to the heart and say, "Whoop, blood pressure's up, slow the heart down. Blood pressure's down, speed the heart up. Uh, and they try to stabilize resting blood pressure. We don't want blood pressure to be all over the place at rest. That's not healthy for the body. Um, so the heart kind of does all the hard work to keep everything else going smoothly.
2: I have another question, and I don't know if we're jumping you know, too far to to this um, i would imagine there's other things to discuss along the way here just on how this system works but not, not to give away the shop right but how how are you teaching these kids to do this how long does it take oh. and can they take it home with them and and is it apparatus? apparatus
0: yeah so so there's there's a there's clinical training grade that we have in our clinics but there's also home trainers so what the the feedback uh, the simplest feedback is They just see their beat-to-beat heart rate on a graph, And what happens is when you breathe in, so happens there's a reflex in the brainstem that inhibits the vagus nerve during inhalation. So your break is going off when you breathe in and your break is going on when you breathe out. If you think about it, it makes sense. You'd want your heart rate to be a little bit faster with a break off when there's oxygen present in the alveoli. And then when you're breathing out, there's really no reason to have a fast heart rate. It's a waste. So it actually slows it down. It saves you something like 350 to 400 million heartbeats in a lifetime by having this healthy break going on and off. And that rhythm is called respiratory sinus arrhythmia. It's a strange kind of a name for a healthy arrhythmia, RSA. And that happens all the time, just during normal breathing. Uh, But it turns out that during uh, specific kind of slow breathing techniques, the break going on and off is really exaggerated a lot. That's what was happening to the cosmonaut. So instead of your heart rate going up when you breathe in from, let's say, 72 to 78 down to 72, it goes from 68 to 82 back down to 68 with each breath cycle. Big swings. And we, we discovered this years and years ago by, by studying yogis and swamis during uh, breath meditations and it looked like something terrible was happening to them. Some of those yogis would have heart rates go from 50 to 90 and back down to 50 with each breath cycle. Uh, The cosmonaut had the same thing. He had been doing that for years, a young, healthy guy. So, and that that rhythm uh, is healthy, is small during normal breathing, but during slow breathing, it's exaggerated. So what we do for the biofeedback is we have people looking at a, a line of their heart rate on a screen and telling them to make the peaks and the valleys as big as they can make them. Um, and we try to find the, the breathing rhythm, amplifies those peaks and valleys, big big waves as much as possible. Uh, and we call that resonance frequency because it turns out there's a very specific frequency in everybody's body that maximizes those peaks and valleys. And it, it has to do with the relationship between the blood pressure rhythms and the, heart and the breathing rhythms being in a certain sequence. And it's truly resonance, like resonance like a bell ringing is resonant or um, you know other kind, kinds of things like that. And once they discover the specific uh, frequency, it, it doesn't change once you're an adult, then we send them home to practice either with just free pacers, there's a whole bunch of things online, Pace. So let's say your resonance frequency is six per minute, six breaths a minute. That's what mine is. So every day I practice with a with some music, and I can give you. We have a, a free website. People can download this music. I can give it to you to put on your thing if you want. And um, so listening to music or or just in my own mind, practicing exactly at that pace. When that happens, my heart rate goes up and down much greater level. Much much greater extent than it would ordinarily, and it turns out that when you do that, it has very powerful effects on uh, the reflexes in the body, but also on the pathways up into the brain. The pathways from the heart to the brain are actually quite quite a bit more powerful than from the brain to the heart. We call those the afferent pathways. So the pathways coming from the heart to the brain are really, uh, there's about 80% of the fibers are after going to the brain, only only 20% from the heart to the brain. And so now we have some data, recent data now that shows that when you do this on a regular basis training, you're affecting a lot of uh, 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 networks in the brain. So these are fMRI resting state networks in the brain, especially for emotional regulation. So the, the network that's the most affected is the amygdala to the left prefrontal cortex network is enhanced tremendously by this practice compared to a placebo, which didn't change it much at all. So we know it has effects both on reflexes in the body, but also having pretty powerful effects on the brain. And so that's the basis of some of the treatments for book, for things like uh, gastrointestinal problems and for uh, chronic pain conditions like fibromyalgia or uh, especially chronic muscle pain chronic muscle pain we think has a peripheral component we, we can talk about that separately if you want
3: but so as far as the the patient you know again we have uh, clients possible clients listening uh, trying to learn about this so as far as the clients concerned you know they sit in uh, you know a lazy boy chair and as far as the sensors that we uh, put on them so it's a breathing Belt and a uh, heart rate sensor on their finger, so it's like a Velcro that goes around their finger. Is that is that right? So they get both of those. And then, do I understand this right? You're, you're looking for a synchrony between the heart rate and the breathing. That, that at some at some point they're 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 not lined up, and then when they get into this uh, sweet spot, then um, that that's where a lot of the feedback comes in. The the patient, the client is um, receiving feedback that these things are overlapping in, in the correct way that brings about the, the, the biggest health response. Is that correct? Correct,
0: correct. Okay. So you would, you would be seeing a kind of chaotic pattern of your breathing and heart rate, kind of going together a little bit. Mm-hmm. Then when you go into effortless, diaphragmatic, slow breathing at your pace, let's say it's six, six breaths a minute, that'd be like four seconds in, six seconds out. Suddenly you'll see both the respiration and the heart rate going together, as you said, in synchrony, mm-hmm. uh, for the kids, we say, makes the dolphins swim together.
3: Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, and so they're seeing these big, slow, beautiful waves going up and down with much greater distance between the valleys and the peaks. And when that happens, you'll start to, they will feel relaxed because it starts to powerfully affect the brain and lowers anxiety, lowers pain threshold. It raises pain thresholds, turns off the sympathetic nervous system, an important part. So you start to see there, if you also have their finger temperature being monitored, you start to see your hands warming because once you open up blood vessels, blood flows into your fingertips and they get warmer. So you see, and as palm, sweat palming goes down, you see everything going in the right direction in this beautiful synchrony of waves. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't breathe that way all the time. Uh, that's, not, that's not healthy or normal. But if you can do that 10 minutes, 20, 10 to 20 minutes a day, it seems to strengthen reflexes throughout the body so that you're always getting the benefit of, benefits of that for 24 to 48 hours.
3: Of all the equipment that we have, and we have you know, a lot of the uh, Thatcher databases and we had our QAEEG and we're taking brain scans and we have all sorts of methods of uh, giving neural feedback and all the biofeedback uh, equipment. Of all of the stuff that we have, HRV is my personal favorite. If I need a little break in the afternoon, if I'm kind of whatever, kind of overwhelmed, or right now I'm training a puppy, so I'm sleep deprived. In, in the afternoon, if I do the HRV for 20 minutes, it, talk about a power nap. I mean, I wake up like I've had a good night rest, and uh, you know, if I just want a little time out and go do that. It, Re- regenerated pretty, pretty quickly. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Also for the neurofeedback following the Thompsons, Michael and Linda Thompson, uh, we always start HRV bio training before we do, especially for D, we started before we do neurofeedback.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, it seems like there's that anxiety component in many of the kids with ADD, ADHD, that calms down and makes it makes it a little bit more greater potential it's not it's not enough training for add and adhd but it seems to be a really good entry level thing to start with so we kind of do a few weeks of hrv training first and get the kid into a kind of nice calm relaxed state before they have to kind of learn to change their brain yeah yeah it's
3: great for everybody yeah you know if they're coming in um squeezing the appointment in during the day or, or rushing in from the traffic or the parking lot, whatever, and to yeah, get them to do that for a few minutes. That's a good question. Do, uh, do you have a set amount of minutes that is, is useful? I know we have kids and adults, they probably have different tolerance. But uh, yeah.
0: Well, we started off with 20 minutes a day and we realized that many people won't do 20 minutes a day. So we still say if you can, that's great. Some people will. But it looks like, and we don't really have good data on this, but it looks like 10 minutes a day is adequate. Some of the kids split it up into five and five. Uh, with the music, they can do it like uh, before COVID anyway. They could do it on the school bus or in the car going to school. And some kids seem to get enough benefit out of five two 5 five-minute things a day they have serious symptoms, we really try and stress 10 minutes a day at least. And it just depends on the disorder the kid has. But um, that seems to be our clinical intuition is that seems to be enough if they do it most days of the week.
3: You, you brought up this improved connection um, between the uh, amygdala and the left free, uh, prefrontal cortex. So are, are you seeing uh, usefulness with this in depression um, and PTSD? Because those are the two things that kind of popped in my head when you said that.
0: Yeah, depression, anxiety, PTSD. So uh, we, have, we have lots of, uh, lots of small studies on depression, where we see really nice changes in depression, uh, either by itself, but especially when it's combined with uh, some other talk therapy, CBT, or ACT. Uh, same, there's a there's a really nice meta-analysis on anxiety, with or without com- combinations of other therapies, that show a really nice um, change in lowering of anxiety with the technique. Uh, for PTSD, we we have. Uh, limited data, but some data that when it's added to other therapies for PTSD, like prolonged exposure or cognitive processing therapy, uh, that just kind of priming the autonomic nervous system makes those exposure therapies, or EMDR, makes those exposure therapies much more effective, probably about 25% more effective. And our experiences that, again, there's only a little data on this, is that it really it really cuts dropouts down. If anyone out there is familiar with these therapies, these therapies are very difficult for p- patients with trauma because you're, you have to relive some of the trauma to get better. Uh, and so that, it's one of the hardest things anybody has to go through. I have, I have a former student who is a military medic. He's been through all kinds of things in his life. He said the hardest thing, he went over to Iraq, and saw such horrible things in the medical set that he got PTSD, classic PTSD. And so he knew he had to go through this therapy. He said it was the hardest thing he ever had to do in his life. But using the using the HRV biofeedback kind of gives him gives you a safety net so that when you're really feeling like these thoughts are going to really drive you up the wall, you can quickly switch into the slow breathing, calm yourself down and then go back to being exposed again to the, the disturbing thoughts. So that that's the way we do it. And when we did that, we saw dropout rates really, really go down a lot. And like instead of 60% dropout rates the VA has, we were getting 4% dropout rates. Really- They're dramatic. not
3: afraid to come in and, and live, relive those things.
0: Right, plus the initial, as you said for yourself, the initial experience is very pleasant. So they know they're gonna come in and get some, a, a pleasant
2: experience first,
0: mm-hmm. and then they can
2: get ready to do the hard work. Educational end, um, and I'm thinking CSPP. And by the way, I went to CSPP Alameda, and oh, okay. there, a, there, there weren't any HRV in the 90s for sure. No. Uh, how, how is this uh, in, in, in integrated into the curriculum? How, how are folks able to access this through their grad school training? Oh, uh,
0: well, in in our campus, we have a health emphasis in the clinical PhD program, which uh, means that, um, as you know, that pre-doctoral training is not specialty training. It's generic clinical training, Uh, but we're allowed to have a kind of minor specialty within it. So in our campus, we have kind of a HRV health psychology uh, lab. So um, students who come who want to study this are in my lab and the, we have a, a clinic on campus where we actually do the clinical training on a sliding fee scale clinic. So they get to have both the, the didactic and the clinical training on our campus. I don't think there's very many other places where you can get that. Uh, just the San Diego campus has that. LA, the LA campus has health psychology but more generic health psychology. Not, not much in terms of biofeedback. We have a fairly unique program that way. And so
2: sure. uh, when we have guests on, I know Laura, Laura seems to be the one to ask, but it's kind of, hey, how, how, do, how do we get people to understand this, to be trained in it and be interested in all that? And so there are some programs and we're finding more and more um, as we do this podcast every week, right? There's, there's a couple of them out there now. There's a few out there. So it certainly is encouraging to know that it's being taught. Right. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And, and Steve, uh, the Stens programs that Steve runs are really excellent, too. I've been offered to work for other people, but I think they do it so responsibly. Mm-hmm. Uh, their, main, their main trainers are really terrific, uh, very good teachers, very gentle teachers. It's, it's hard stuff for people. And and I really enjoy those two day courses I do for him because he supplies enough equipment to the, to, uh, we usually in in your area, we usually do it in St. Charles. Mm -hmm. So he has a big, a big hotel room in St. Charles and and we have enough equipment for every two participants to be on a Nexus. Uh, And the training is so much better when you can do it that way. So I can do the whole didactic thing for the morning and put people on machines in the afternoon Realize they hardly understood any of it, uh, and then we go through the whole protocol in the afternoon on the machine, and suddenly it starts to dawn on how this works, and they can see clinically how it works, and we go back with questions, and so I really feel like, uh, other than my own students, of course, where I can do this, other training programs that just talk at people for a day or two don't really, you can't really cement th- these principles in, so sure. So I really uh, think they've done a great job with it. And hopefully we can get back to live training again pretty soon. I can get back to St. Charles.
2: (laughs) We had John Anderson on last week. yeah. And everybody, everybody, all all, all three co-hosts here have been through uh, at least one of John's classes. And personally, I don't know if I feel like I graduated, but I certainly was exposed to a hell of a lot of information that uh, let me know. I need to probably keep up with this for sure.
0: Yeah, so, so uh, John and uh, Tony Hughes are just really, really good teachers, right? Very gentle, calm teachers. And so I really appreciate it. I, I always recommend them. So Steve's not paying me anything to say that. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, so to piggyback off that same question, what do you think gets in the way of having this out there more or more popular? Um, you know, certainly that's that's our goal here is to, you know, make these things more accessible, try to, you know, break things down into, you know, more common language and to educate people and have the podcast and, and, you know, kind of stretch this idea and put it out there. But do you have an opinion on kind of why it's not, you know, it's it's a great thing. I mean, that's what I just said is, yeah, boy, I I feel like a million bucks after doing it, but I I seem to spend a lot of time educating people, you know, almost trying to sell it or, or coax them in, hey, give this a try. Because they just have never heard of it. What do you think gets in the way of, of having this more popular?
0: Uh, well, a number of things. You know, so one thing is there's so many so many complementary treatments out there that have no empirical basis at all, and people aren't they aren't good at telling the difference between what's snake oil and what's real. The other thing is that medical school training is just very slowly coming along in terms of training MDS. Um, the you know the the medical model we have is diagnose and treat. So you do it you do a scan you do a test you find out what's wrong you treat it with medicine or a surgery or some other therapy. It's, it's so complicated that that MDs just fall into that pathway. So the kinds of disorders that we treat you can't do that with. They're difficult to there's no there's no good diagnostic test that they believe in. So that's one problem. The, the exception to that are pediatric gastroenterologists; they totally get it. So that we we get every referral from our children's hospital for kids with functional disorder. There's with no no resistance. But like cardiologists, you'd think they would get it. They kind of know about H. R. V. But they don't really get it. Some G. P. S. Do, but you know the family medicine docs are more friendly to it than other docs. But so you know, without a doctor referring somebody, the first thing they do is go to the doctor for these kinds of problems. And without a doctor, that's a that's a problem, and it's a little bit hard to understand. And it's not a single pill that makes you better. You have to practice on a regular basis. So for biofeedback, it's daily practice. For neurofeedback, it's a lot of sessions, and that's a that's a barrier. There's no doubt about it. When someone looks at that and say, you know, I'm going to have to do 20 to 30 sessions of this to to make the difference. That is a big barrier uh, for ours. We don't, we don't need, we only need four or five sessions, but if the, if the person doesn't keep practicing, the benefits don't really last very long. So those are both things that in our culture, people want quick fixes. They don't want lifestyle change. They don't want um, things that we're talking about.
3: So to clear, clear up what you you said. Um, so it, it could, and and I, dislike when I get these kind of these kind of questions. Well, how many sessions and when will I be better? And, and, you know, to your point is, yeah, they're looking for a fix. And if I take this pill, you know, when will I immediately be better after the average probably of 20 to 30 sessions? Are are these symptoms reversed? I mean, are are they done, so to speak? What are we telling people?
0: Yeah, it depends on the symptoms. So, like for the adolescents with uh, with abdominal pain, they're all they're often symptom free in three or four weeks if they're practicing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we don't need we only need uh, four or five sessions usually of actually if we're if we're only doing the biofeedback. We usually combine the biofeedback with talk therapies, a, a mindfulness type therapy for. Where problems are a little bit more than just the autonomic regulation. Uh, it's a nice lead into that, and people kind of often want to do that. But if they don't, oftentimes they're better quickly. Um, if and if they keep practicing, we do follow-ups, and they keep practicing, they they do well uh, for this one. So um, and it it varies. So we definitely see some people who can't master this right away. I'm sure you've seen it too. They, for, they can't breathe with a diaphragm, for instance, and we have to do a lot of training just to teach them to bring their diaphragm. Uh, and then once they master that, they have a hard time with the HRV. There's a few of those. They may, they may take, you know, 5, 10, 12 sessions to master it. Mostly people master it pretty quickly. And then if they're practicing, that gets the, the first component of the treatment done, Let's say in addition to that, their parents, are these are adolescents, their parents are going through a divorce, they're in a big junior high that's very stressful. There tend to be, these, they, those adolescents tend to be anxious kids. So then we will just kind of meld that into a mindfulness-based talk therapy called ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy,
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, which uh, we find to be very effective. We have a lot of uh, kid-oriented things, but also for adults. Mm-hmm. And lots of young adults as well.
3: Mm-hmm. Are you finding in California that insurance is covering this or, or no?
0: It just depends. It, it depends on how good your biller is, how good the person you have is for billing. For me, I've given up trying to bill it as biofeedback. I just, I'm a licensed psychologist. So I just bill it as psychotherapy since I'm in the room the whole time talking to them. And so I get paid in the usual psychotherapy rates. And that's true for the panels, for my former students who are on panels have found, with a few exceptions, uh, TRICARE, the military uh, will pay uh, under some biofeedback codes. Aetna has a code for it, but they often, it's just like pulling teeth to get them to pay. For people who are not licensed uh, social workers or psychologists, it's a, it's a battle to get it paid. If you're in a group with a really good billing person, they usually can get paid. Yeah, I don't want to sugarcoat it. It's definitely a challenge.
1: For the moms and dads out there, I, I know you psychologists hate getting pinned down, but I'm going to try. Kids, three of three or four weeks, they, they can go through the training process and they will get, quote unquote, better. The anxiety... What, what are the other diagnoses that can help out in three to four weeks?
0: Uh, well, so the ones the most common ones we get with, with the young people are anxiety, uh, gastrointestinal symptoms, some, some kinds of chronic pain. Um, so sometimes it's muscle pain. That one resolves pretty quickly. We usually combine that with some kind of physical modality like acupressure, acupuncture, or physical therapy. Fibromyalgia takes a lot longer. Uh, although it, it better, it's easier to treat in kids. Fibromyalgia is a, is a central pain amplification syndrome. And there's that definitely an autonomic component, but it's much more than that. So for fibromyalgia, we would, we, I would temper my predictions for that one. Things that are autonomically mediated, like POTS, like uh, postural orthostatic, tachycardia syndrome, where people get dizzy or lightheaded, that, that, that usually responds pretty well Especially if uh, if our we do have some testing we can do in the beginning show what state their autonomic nervous system is in. So it's like having a bad thermostat, right? If you, if you have a bad thermostat, it gets cold before the heat comes on, It's same for your blood pressure. So it turns out that this training strengthens that thermostat for blood pressure. So we do get good results with people with uh, some people. There, there's no a number of causes for that, but for some people with, uh, POTS or dysautonomia, it's often diagnosed as. So, those are the, and depression, anxiety, of course, as we said before, right. are the, the, those are the primary ones we see. We do get an occasional, like sometimes we get kids with Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. We can't, clearly can't cure that. Right. But helping them with stress seems to be a benefit for people with those disorders. Those are not stress-related disorders per se, but they create a lot of stress. So we, we, are, we get reports back that people feel a lot calmer about being able to manage their chronic diseases like that.
1: So for three to four weeks, doctor, is that like two sessions a week to train them? Obviously, they have to do it at home on their own. I'm just trying to see how many sessions would it take in those. Yeah, usually
0: once a week. We usually figure we usually figure five or six sessions once a week, but the later sessions we usually spread out to two weeks because we want them to practice more in between. They're practicing now. We're kind of experimenting with. with home devices that will send us their data on the practice. So now we're getting cheaper and cheaper devices. There's one from China called the Keto KYTO. It's a little, right now it's hard to get. It's a, it's an ear clip device that's about $35. So the parents usually are willing to spend that money. And then you can go to one of these apps that will send the data to us and we can analyze the data. We can see how the practice is going. Now. Okay. Once we see those practice there, that the person practicing effectively on a pretty regular basis from that data, um, we usually see really good results from those people. People that don't practice, we often don't see great results with. So So we can tell mom and dad, three to
1: four weeks, five to six sessions, $1,200, and you're going to have a better
0: quality of life. Yeah, not even that. Most most sessions would be probably about one hundred and forty dollars. So for those, I mean, worst sessions, case, I mean, twelve, yeah. twelve hundred, and
1: your you kids can have a better life. Oh yeah, even yeah. especially, yeah,
0: absolutely, yeah. I mean, we in my workshop, I finish up the workshop with letters from former patients telling us to our clinicians. One of them was named Megan. So it was this like a third year, a third grader, dressed in magnificent Megan. And it's the cutest letter you've ever seen about how her stomach aches went away and she could never be more thankful and loves her forever. We see a lot of those and we've been doing it long enough now. So I get to see these kids started in third grade. Now they're finishing college and they tell us they're still using the technique when they need it.
3: Priceless.
2: Yeah, exactly. I I had a question. It's definitely a left turn or right turn or something. And and it's self-indulgent just that, in a few words or sentences talk about the enteric nervous system and how that fits in here. I don't hear it talked about much. And to be honest, it's a little confusing to me, but I know it's in the gut. And so it has to be involved with what we're talking about somehow I would think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's actually a a nice book out called this the second brain about the enteric nervous system. The enteric nervous system is a series of neurons in the gut all through the gut from the esophagus down, down to the lower intestine that regulate everything that the gut does, taking fluid out, moving, things, moving uh, food processes along, taking the nutrients out, everything is controlled by the enteric nervous system. It has 10 to the ninth neurons, 10 with nine zeros after the neurons. It's a massive, almost a brain in and of itself it has a lot of internal regulation, but it's externally regulated by the parasympathetic nervous system. Okay. So when this parasympathetic nervous system is on, doing its thing, it's uh, the enteric nervous system is doing what it's supposed to do, to take the right amount of fluid out of the out of the food stuff, move it along properly, expel it uh, without pain, without discomfort. Uh, when it's not working properly, then you have possible symptoms from the from the esophagus to the stomach to the small intestine to the large intestine, where there can be pain thresholds can be greatly reduced if that system's not working. So in in most of the uh, most of the patients with abdominal pain, abdominal pain comes from excessive stretching of the gut. There's no there's no there's no pain stressors sensors in the gut for cutting, there's only, the only two that there are is for extreme acidity or for stretching. So if you've ever just had like a gas bubble and you had like a little twingy pain in your gut, that's because those nerves are very clearly detecting something stretching the gut too much, sending back information to the brain. And in the patients with these problems, that sensitivity to that stretch is greatly amplified. So what you and I might feel like as a twinge, they feel like a crippling abdominal pain, and that's because they over time the the, the uh, parasympathetic system isn't regulating the entire nervous system properly. so if we can restore that uh, oftentimes very quickly we can restore it sometimes it takes longer then that uh, th- those sensations are no longer pain they just become normal gut sensations like we all get. Thank you.
3: Well, no, I'm I'm just glad we're having this. I was just thinking, you know, nice conversation. I'm I'm glad we have access to you and be able to, you know, ask these kinds of questions to clarify it. And again, you know, I I do feel like I'm spending a lot of time educating, which is which is the right thing. And it's not a complaint as much as, you know, if if it became a little more. you know, popularized, then I think that's where we get a lot of our referrals, by the way, is, yeah, through word of mouth that people say, hey, I had a great experience. And they tell their neighbor and, and we get a lot of, of of those kind of referrals. So I, I guess my comment is just more appreciative, uh, you know, grateful that you came in and and uh, took the time to speak with us. And it's it's nice, you know, you're, you're a psychology professor, distinguished, you know, lends credibility, like you said, yeah, there's, there's plenty of people who hang their shingles out there, but it's nice that you know we have professionals who are clinically trained and you know ha- have the 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 knowledge base you know for the biological you know things and helps educate the the clients and, and the the listeners that we have so so thank you for coming here and talking with us doctor
1: what's the best way for our our listeners to uh, check out your services like what was that webpage you're talking about uh, for hr yeah
0: um two that we can do. One is uh, our our website. That's just for our little sliding fee clinic in in San Diego at our school, but it has the free music for pacing, especially for kids. That seems to be useful. I think I got that right. Okay. So that's the website. One of my students also made a a little 12-minute video on HRV, uh, which you can get on on Google by just... uh, uh, Googling uh, Stern, his name was Mark Stern. Stern it was <laughs>
2: another Stern, of course. Oh
0: God! is Not Steve Stern. This is Mark Stern. No relation.
3: <laughs> not Sturman.
0: Not Sturman. No, no. Stern BSC, HRV. I think if you Google that, sort of a little spiel like "Is H.R.V. right for you?" kind of thing. <laughs> Got it. Uh, and it's a nice. He put together a nice little. Um, explanation kind of like i was talking about
1: all right r-g-e-v-i-r-t-z w-i-x site s-i-t-e Oops, there's a com
0: yeah there's a com in there sorry .com. .com, Check, com. Pick-
1: dot site. com dot com got my site okay yeah dr gibber what about the STEMS website I, you're on the STEMs website if somebody wants to take the course i know we got covid how many if we don't have covid how many how many times a year do you offer the course
0: Oh, it just depends what Steve wants me to do. Usually yeah. once or twice. <clears throat> I just yeah. did it. I just did an online version for him. Should be coming out soon, uh, which is you know me talking to a <laughs> to a computer for two days. <laughs> right, 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 right. That
1: sounds
0: fun. Yeah, thing. I would much rather have people there. But uh, I put together as best I could all the materials and, and and that you can. I don't know where he is with with finishing the editing of that, but it's. I finished my part of it. That should be coming out. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Geverts.
1: Did I say that right at the end of the show? Finally, Geverts. 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 Geez, Louise. <laughs> I need That's some all right,
0: I might have to get some. really used to it. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> yeah. My all right. Brother, my brother's a lawyer, right in your area. So oh, you know. Oh, is might, he? Might see. You remember that uh, bureau bureau case some years ago? That kid from Nutria that had a ritual killing. Oh yeah, he uh, he defended <laughs> Wow. Oh, okay. So, okay. and there's a whole book about it, actually, about uh, <clears throat> that, that. Says, oh no so kidding. He's over in he's over in Glenview. As a he's a criminal lawyer. Well, I
2: I I'm gonna use him in a pinch. I thought you were gonna say Pete's gonna be hearing from him for slandering your name. <laughs> yeah. No, he's not a civil.
0: I have to hire a civil lawyer to do that. <laughs> he would defend Pete. He
1: would defend Pete. God knows what. There's no defense for me. All right, guys. Thanks for coming on board. Okay, guys.
2: Thank you. Uh, Thank you, you, Doctor.
1: Have a
0: good
1: one. Dr. Laura can be found at jansons.com, J A N S O N S.com. Dr. Skip can be found at drskiprin.com. That's drskip, H R I N.com. Do you have an idea for a topic or a guest? Please email me, Pete at neuronoodle.com. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter. Cue the music.